Welcome to The Noncast, an ongoing conversation around the topics of spirituality and culture for those who find themselves wondering and wandering on the fringe of religion. I'm Nathan Roberts. And I'm Stephen Drager. We're hoping to create a safe space for the rest of us to be honest. So this is for anyone, regardless of their faith background or life circumstance or current musings in regards to life and faith matters. And it's for all the nons out there. So the folks who no longer identify with any one stream of Christianity or may be questioning their commitment to a faith tradition altogether. For those deconstructing and reconstructing and for those who are finally being honest about their questions and feelings, we welcome you. We figured that as you guys are getting to hear from us, it would also be beneficial for you to get to know us, our background, our story a little bit. And so over the next couple of episodes, Stephen and I are going to be sharing our stories with you and with one another. Um, but I, I'm excited that he's actually going first. Uh, I was trying to think about what I would share. And I think this will honestly, Stephen, hearing your story will probably help to, uh, to jog some of my own and uh, know what's best to share. But I'm excited to to be reminded of uh, what it is that's brought you to where you're at today and for our listeners to get to know a little bit about you as well. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's always weird sharing parts of my journey. Um, but then I feel like I, I tell it and then I'm reminded of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And oftentimes in conversations... Um, when I share like what's kind of like the dirty parts of my quote unquote Christian story, like all the stuff that would probably, um, make some conservative Christians cringe a little bit or, or prompt them to ask <laughs> questions, um, are, are typically I've noticed are the, are the things that help me connect most with real honest people. Yeah. Well, and it came up really naturally last week too, which is another reason why we thought this was a good time for us to actually share more of ourselves with our listeners, because you had started to share about having Landon and, yeah. um, and, and there's just, there's so much, I think around that, that time of your life that I'm excited for people to get to hear that I think will, will help just in, in clarifying and, and helping people understand, um, how it is that you think, why it is the way that you think the way you think, what happened to, to God, to Christianity during that time that then actually has, uh, influenced a lot of where you fall today as well. Yeah. So I have no idea where you plan on starting, but, um, why don't you just start and then I'll ask questions as, uh, as they seem fit and yeah, just talk about your life. Sweet. Uh, by the way, I am drinking uh, Recursion. Oh, yes. It's an American IPA today by Bottle Logic. This is not a endorsement, uh, not a paid endorsement. <laughs> but if they want to endorse us, we will uh, gladly man, accept. Our our first. <laughs> could you imagine? Oh man, my parents would be so proud <laughs> of this of this Christian podcast that is. Uh, advertising and sponsored by local breweries <laughs> and speaking of today i'm drinking uh bittenville brewing companies what did, what was it it's covered right now in my yeti so if yeti wants to you know sponsor us we'll take that one as well um it's little something i forget the name of it it's great though it's an ipa and uh and i was before we jumped on here to those who are listening, I was telling Stephen, I haven't had beer in like four weeks. It was pre, pre-coronavirus uh, for me, and this is so refreshing. I've been just drinking through my whiskey, and uh, and I'm, I have missed beer. I've realized that. I think whiskey is like my go-to when I'm just wanting to sit and have a nice glass of something. Uh, also, when I'm like sad or like depressed about something whiskey is my go-to um but like there's nothing like a like a good beer after a long hard day of work yeah i mean for you it's like water right oh yeah you wake up you brush your teeth with a bottle of 
not Jack. Jack. Nope. Not, not Jack. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man. Yeah, um, a beer after a long days of work or in the middle of a long day work. <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah. It's coronavirus. Oh, you know, when I when I find myself most wanting to drink whiskey, it's when I'm watching shows um, like Bosch or Goliath. Both of those are happen to be Amazon shows, but... Um, those guys, the the main characters always have a glass of whiskey in almost every scene, it seems like. And if I don't have one and I'm watching that, I'm like, oh man, I really want a glass of whiskey right now. Yeah. That was me with a Jack Ryan. I had to have a, a like a glass mm. of scotch with me watching that show. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed too, like I go through little like phases. Um, I'm not drinking one right now, but I'm, I'm really on like a, a juicy IPA kick right now. Yeah. Um, before that, it was um, I was doing hazies. Um, mm. Before what that, about hazy I, and juicy. Um, I I mean I think that there was probably a a window when I moved from hazy to juicy. I think because I was having juicier haze. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, or like West Coast. I was doing West Coast style IPAs for a while. Um, but I didn't used to like beer. I remember I tried beer when I was sixteen. Um, on vacation with my buddy, my friend and I went to North Carolina with his family and they're British. So they were like, Oh, here's beer. <laughs> like the yeah. parent, the parents were like, Oh, here's, here's a can of beer. Um, and I remember like wanting to be cool. So I like tried to sip, it was like Bud Light or something. And I was like, this, this isn't good. And, um, pretended to like sip on it the whole time, but like just left it full like somewhere <laughs> just put it up to your lips yeah <laughs> yeah and it was disgusting and i never i didn't try beer again um and then on my 21st birthday i went out with some friends and um had a pear cider that was good and some frambois which is like french belgian mm-hmm. um beer but it's not really beer it's really um, fruity right super fruity it's like yeah. frothy wine basically and um and then after having that for a little while, I started to get into Blue Moon, and then I started to like Shock Top, and then I started to venture into some craft beers after like a year of drinking mm-hmm. only Blue Moon. Um, and yeah, so... Um, I feel like you're describing every millennial's uh, journey with beer. Yes. Um, I am also describing my journey into Christianity Oh, snap. A little bit. Um, Dang. Yeah. (laughs) Look what you just did. So, like, people will ask me, like, you know, like you do, I guess, if you're over the age of 40 and a Christian, uh, when did you become a Jesus or or a Jesus? When did you become a a Christian or, or, oh, when were you saved? And I never know how to answer that question Mm. um, because there wasn't that moment for me. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of those moments, <laughs> um, mm. but yeah. for every moment that I had where I felt like, you know, I felt the presence of God and felt called into this thing, I, I can probably count twice as many moments where I had the opposite experience where I was going, I don't even think any of this is real. Mm-hmm. And I think the first time that I, looking back that I had, that I can remember questioning God and like questioning whether or not God was real, um, like in a very real sense was when I was seven years old. Um, and, and, and the reason I can remember this is, um, I was adopted, uh, my biological mom, I'm one of seven or eight on that side. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't share a dad with any of my siblings, Um, but my biological mom was a drug addict, alcoholic, um, was homeless at times. Um, so I got taken away by child protective services and placed in the foster system, um, and placed in a, uh, Christian home that later adopted me. Um, it's funny because my parents tell me that they didn't actually want me. Um, (laughs) no way. Not that it's so I had to clarify, not that they didn't Initially. want me. Yeah. It was, yeah. they were only looking to, um, foster kids that were up for adoption. And I wasn't because the courts were basically like, no, the mom still has the rights. We're yeah, waiting yeah. for her to sober up and clean up. 
So um, they basically, my social worker was like, hey, he, this kid just needs a place to stay for a few months. And so my parents were like, yeah, fine. But a few months turned into a year, which turned into three years, which turned into five years. Um, how, how old were you when you entered into your family? Uh, your adopted family? Just under two years old. But still had visitations with my mom regularly. Still had weekends with my mom at times. Yeah. yeah. But I remember um, when I was seven years old, uh, by this point, my mom was homeless, was like, you know, totally on the streets. Um, and any time that I would want to see her and inquire about her, my parents would have to like search for her. So they would reach out to people that knew her. Um, and so I remember being seven years old and they were able to track her down. And we're like driving out to LA to meet her at a park. And I remember being super excited and nervous, but, but excited to like tell her all about the things that was, that were going on in my life, my soccer team and what I was learning in school and the girl I had a crush on and all this stuff. Uh, and we get to the park and we're waiting and she's, it's been a while. She hasn't showed up. And so, um, I don't even know what, how long it was, but as a seven year old, I mean, that felt like eternity. Um, yeah. And finally, my parents were like, no, it's I, we got to go. I, you know, I, I don't think they said she's not coming, but they basically were like, it's time to go. And so I begged them, like, no, we got to stay, please. And they're like, no. And they're finally like, OK, fine, we'll stay. So we waited a little bit longer. And then again, they're like, Stephen, we got to go. And I'm like, no, 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 she's coming. I promise. Like, she would not leave me here. So we waited a little bit more. And then finally, they had to take me by the hand and lead me back to the, the car. And I remember jumping back into the back seat of the van and just sobbing all the way home. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I think for the first time I wrestled with this tension of wanting to believe what my parents had taught me about who God is, that God is good, that God loves me and wrestling with the reality of what I just experienced. And I think for the very first time in my life at seven years old, I lamented and I, mm. and I questioned whether or not God was real. Um, and I think that's when my journey began of kind of holding both Christian beliefs and doubt hand in hand. Is that because your parents, is that because you, you, you wanted to believe your parents that your birth mother was going to show up and then she didn't or what, what for you was the connection between like mom not showing up and then maybe God's not real either? Um, I don't know. I, knowing my, my parents, um, I mean, I, I grew up in a conservative Christian home, so I'm sure that somewhere along the way, probably before and after that event, there were, you know, conversations about you know god is in control and um and god is good and god loves you and god wants the best for you but it, it probably was tailored um though not said explicitly i think it was insinuated that god is in control and god basically determines what happens and so mm -hmm. in my mind at seven years old i was like did you know it wasn't just oh my mom doesn't want me it was well, God might not want me then, mm. you know, um, yeah. and maybe this God that is good and, and is loving and stuff, maybe something's wrong with me. And so this God doesn't love me. And then they were also like, well, maybe there isn't, maybe God isn't really good, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I remember in junior high, I went on a mission trip to Mexico and was at a worship service. And I think like that was the first time that I would say I experienced something um, incredibly emotional in, in relationship to spirituality and religious belief stuff. Um, and I don't even remember like what triggered it, um, but it was something about the worship and the music that just made me fall on my knees and sob for like an hour. Um, so yeah, I like when I probably think of the first time I had some kind of like big experience, it was probably junior high. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's ironic that my first experience was 
the opposite. Right. Yeah. Is any of this real? Does any of this matter? Yeah. What do you, do you have any recollection of what it was like between seven and 12 or 13? Uh, not really. I mean, not in terms of spiritual stuff. I know that we, my family had like weekly Bible studies at our house and my dad was, uh, on the pastoral staff at our church. And so, um, I'm a PK. So I, um, I grew up, you know, having to do like set up and tear down every Sunday at church and, um, you know, be at church for like eight hours on Sunday kind of thing. Um, (laughs) I was involved in all of our like church theater productions and that kind of stuff. But yeah. And then like, even after that, after like during like junior high and high school, I was in our youth group and, um, really liked it a lot. I think I, I made a lot of really good connections. I really liked our youth leader. Um, and so I think probably my high school was one that was probably the time where I felt like the most connected to my faith, um, in terms of like what I believed about God. And I remember, uh, my senior year of high school, I had this, uh, best friend who, um, she had a heart condition and I remember her coming to me one day in our senior year and she was like, Hey, I really need to talk to you. I was like, okay. She's like, so I had an appointment with my cardiologist and, um, it looks like there's like, you know, the condition that I have is worsened and I only have six months left to live. And this was like my best friend. Um, it was one of those like where I kind of like secretly liked her too, but was also like, no, this is a good friendship. I'm not going to, I'm not going to ruin this. Um, and I remember being like so sad about it, but then immediately was like, okay, I, I know that like God has a purpose for, for me here. And my purpose, uh, like God put me here to, to make the rest of her life amazing. And so for the next several months, I, you know, I hung out with her as much as I could. I would like take her out on fun little friend dates. Um, you know, I would, I made her like scrapbooks and all this other stuff, just like completely poured myself out to her. Um, and then a, a few months later found out that she had lied about the whole thing that oh. she, she did have a heart condition, but it was very minor and oh, there man. was nothing relatively close. And again, I felt like I was left with this idea of like, I could have sworn that this was God, oh, you know, telling like, me that this was my purpose. Yeah. 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 Cause I, you know, I like, I prayed about it. I, you know, all, all this stuff. I, I, you know, just, I was reading scriptures and everything, anything to try to like figure out what to do. And I, I really felt like God was telling me, you know, this is, this is what I've placed you on this earth to do, you know? And I was a young, naive 17 year old. So that part of that probably explains it, (laughs) but you know, like, nevertheless, I just, I felt like, Oh man. Yeah. But, but that's like the rug just getting pulled out from under you. I mean, not only, not only to have your friend, to find out that your friend has been lying, but then the disorientation of, but I thought God said this. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just kind of another blow to my whole faith experience. And then in college, um, I, so I, in my first year of college, I lost my virginity to, um, a senior at a, very respectable Christian university. <laughs> I was not a student there. I was, uh, I went to a community college to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I remember I, I lost my virginity to this girl who, well, I won't say anything more about the, this, that story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, how I knew her was a little, yeah. <laughs> Okay. But, um, yeah, so I, I met this girl and, um, pretty quickly afterwards, like probably like a week afterwards, um, felt a lot of shame and guilt about mm-hmm. it. Um, 
which is probably was probably a product of like the culture that I grew up in in Christianity where it it was almost like the worst thing you could possibly do is have sex before marriage. Yeah. And and so I don't even to this day I'm not even convinced that I felt ashamed because I felt like it was wrong. Although I would say it, it was um because it was a total fling. One, I was being selfish and I just wanted to get some and uh-huh. had no interest in dating this girl kind of thing. Um, you know, but I, I remember, I, I think looking back, it was this like, oh, it, it was, I felt ashamed because of what I was taught about it. Yeah. The group that you identified with told you that this was something to be shameful about. Yeah. Um, and like anything relating to sexuality outside the confines of marriage was something to be ashamed about. And probably even like within the confines of marriage, like you don't talk about sex. Right. And right. Or certain, certain sexual activity. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember I, I felt so ashamed and so guilty that I felt like the only response I could have was to turn my life around and, um, you know, rededicate my life to Christ mm. and, dive into to reading the Bible and praying and, um, you know, going to youth group more and, um, serving in various ministries. So I think, um, I was like playing on the worship team for a few years by that point. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to play every Sunday and I'm going to do this and this and this. And there's this weird thing about Christianity where, we talk about grace, which is this idea that we are given something that we don't deserve. So we're given mm-hmm. forgiveness for all the wrongs that we've ever committed, even though we don't deserve the forgiveness, right? Um, so that's grace. And grace is always talked about as this thing that is freely given to you. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything. It's it's a gift from God. And yet, like somehow, because of the way that all of the other Christian beliefs are set up. There's almost this like subtle underlying belief that you have to earn it back. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to do anything to, there's nothing you can do to earn the grace, but there's kind of like this, you know, you're so indebted that now you kind of have to um, show that you responded to the grace. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've had any experience with that yourself. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's this sense in which it's like you've been saved now. Start acting like it. Yeah. Um. Or God no longer calls you a sinner, so stop, stop being a sinner. You know, and <laughs> like just yeah. these. Yeah, th- these. Uh, sometimes unspoken. It's always in, it's always insinuated. I think through the way that theology is taught in the church context. Um, And it's interesting. I mean, I think about certain scriptures too, that even to some degree speak to it. Uh, Like in, in one of Paul's letters, he writes, um, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And, and I think that, I mean, and I, I'm speaking from experience here. I weaponized that against people in the church when I was in teaching positions in the past to say, like, Hey, you've been saved. And so now start acting like you've been saved. Um, and so we'll take scriptures like that. And when I use the, the, the phrase weaponize it, it's, it's taking those, those scriptures. And then I would say distorting them and making them, um, rods that we beat people with or that we shame people with in order to conform to some sort sort of image that we want to see for them. Because yeah. if we see that conformity, then we as leaders in the church think that we've done our job correctly. Yeah, totally. We've quote unquote discipled people well. Yeah. And I think I told, I, I think I fell prey to that because I, I mean, I started, you know, diving into everything. I very quickly rose through the ranks as a up, up and coming worship leader um, and mm-hmm. as a youth leader, um, I mean, there was a time 
because it was probably a few years of this, probably three years of this, where I just, I was like, I'm all in. And um, there was a time where I was probably working, volunteering, so not getting paid, volunteering about 20 to 30 hours a week at the church, in yeah. addition to going to school and working. Um, and I loved it. I, I felt like I, I mean, I felt like I had a sense of belonging. I felt like I was, you know, part of a higher purpose, um, all this kind of stuff. And it was about a few years of that. Um, I was, yeah, again, I was playing on the worship team all the time, was starting to lead worship more frequently in our main service, um, at, you know, 20 years old, um, probably the youngest worship leader at the church, um, probably ever. And at the peak of my quote unquote ministry career. And again, I wasn't getting paid. Um, but the peak of that with worship and youth ministry, um, I ended up meeting a girl. I met her online because I was like going on dates and stuff and just was like, I don't like anybody in the area. I think I need to tailor my search <laughs> a little bit. And so I joined a, what was supposed to be a Christian dating site. Um, and met this girl and pretty quickly um, fell down this hole of like infatuation and um, we started having sex I think like the second week we started eating um, and by the end of probably the first month she was pregnant mm. and I, I realized looking back um, that I was looking to fill a hole in my life because of all the relational trauma that I experienced um, yeah. growing up, you know, from my biological mom to even stuff that happened in my adopted family Um and then to the experience in high school with my best friend, to the college experience, um, I felt like I was looking to fill this hole in my life. And even though I would say that I was a Christian and would have probably at some point professed, like many other Christians, that I was made whole and complete in Christ, I think I knew deep down that there was a hole that wasn't being filled and something was still lacking in my life. Uh, and it, it was probably just unhealed trauma from my upbringing. Yeah. Um, but there was nevertheless a very deep hole inside of me, even though I was a Christian and I did not feel whole and complete. I think I felt very broken and empty in Christianity or, or at least like my beliefs about God weren't filling that hole. And so I think I went looking for things that would hopefully fill the, the void in my life. Um, sure. And so that's, I think how I, that's how I met um, my son's mom. And I won't go into all the, the details on the relationship um, mainly because um, I think uh, I need to be respectful of, of her and um, my side of the story, at least, um, can probably can probably be perceived as damaging to her character mm -hmm. um, and it was also six years ago now mm -hmm. so um, I want to give her credit in terms of growth and um, that kind of stuff but yeah. um, the relationship did not pan out um, ended before the pregnancy um, was brought to full term and so, but during that time, I think that was for me relationally the straw that broke the camel's back. I, I will say this just for clarity um, and context. There was a lot of deception, um, a lot of lying, a lot of um, issues there that, um, that made that experience very bad for me. Um, and... I remember, um, again, because I was, you know, at the peak of my ministry career and faith practice, 
I remember um, in a moment of naivety thinking, okay, I need to burn all of these bridges. I can't go back to the church now. Mm. Um, and if I'm, you know, obviously I'm going to be a dad, so I need to, um, I need to basically, I need to move down to where she lives. She lived about an hour away. I need to move down there and I need to get an apartment. And so I went, I found an apartment and was about to sign a lease. And I got this gut feeling that just told me, don't do it. Don't sign. And so I asked the realtor, I said, Hey, you know, can I come back on Monday actually and, and sign it? And she was like, yeah, no problem. Um, and we broke up later that day for yeah. good. Um, and because I had burned all of my bridges and was, I had my room already packed up and I had decided I was going to leave. And I knew that, you know, at least, or I thought that my parents were going to disown me. So they didn't even know yet. And, mm. uh, I remember my, my dad was like, Hey, so, uh, what are all the boxes for in your room? And that's when I was like, um, I'm moving out. I'll tell you about it in a couple of days. And that's when I broke the news and said, you know, I was, but by that point, um, I had already found out. And so I was homeless for about three weeks, um, was, I had gotten a job down in that area, um, uh, where she lived. And so, uh, two jobs. So I was working from 4.30 AM until noon. And then I was working from about three o'clock until midnight and yes. That was my work schedule. And then I would sleep in my car. Um, oh, you know, I would drive over to my other job, sleep in my car. And um, and there was this old Scottish lady that I met. And she took me in. She lived in the area. And so she took me in, gave me a, gave me a place to stay, um, charged me rent, but was gave me a, a really good deal. Um, and... She was actually uh, the one that introduced me to Scotch. Um, and <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. yeah Scottish yeah. lady. So she's this like old, older Scottish lady. And every couple nights she would just, you know, invite me out onto her patio and, and she would have a, a glass of Scotch and a cigar for me. And she would just sit and, and listen to my woes and listen to me complain and, and vent and, um, she was a Christian, but wasn't attending church and is probably very similar to like where I'm at now. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, she was like, yeah, I don't like church and I don't like Christians, but I love God. And I know I, I recognize how much God has done for me in my life. And, um, so, but she was just the most, it was ironic. It was like this non-church going liberal Christian who for me was like the most like Jesus person yeah. I'd ever met. Yeah. But I remember in that season for the first time in my life felt comfortable calling myself an atheist. Hmm. Um, I, and again, looking back, it was, I thought, and I didn't grow up in a reformed house. It was non-denominational kind of Baptist roots but I somewhere along the way picked up the notion that God was in control and that meant that God caused everything to happen or at least allowed mm. things to happen. Yeah. And I remember thinking, why the F would God allow this to happen to me? And this is the worst thing that I could possibly go through right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be a dad or not. I'm stuck here alone. I can't go. I, I've, burned my entire life to the ground i can't you know i don't have anywhere to go and there was almost this like mourning process that had to happen when i started calling myself an atheist because i had lost god mm -hmm. or at least i i lost my idea of god yeah and i i probably for about a year and a half to two years was in this season of deconstructing and processing and reconstructing and i think i found god in the silence 
and in the tension and in the doubt and in the wrestling. And, and I think I found God when I started embracing my humanness and my doubts and my limitedness rather than some divine expectation or divine standard that I had to live by. Yeah. But I think I found the divine in my own weakness and my limitedness. And so I ended up moving back to my home area because I realized that I, if I was going to be a dad, if this kid was actually going to be mine, that I needed the support of my family and friends. Mm. And so I went back, I went back to my old church and that began a process of being, I think, fairly critical of the church um, because I experienced what it was like to be on the outside and what yeah. it was like to not no longer adhere to these beliefs. Um, I felt very much like an outsider walking into my own home church. Mm. And, um, and so I ended up about, I probably stayed there for about four or five months and then I ended up leaving, which um, you mentioned, I think a couple episodes ago, this uh, like staff transitions tend to give permission to people who want to leave to leave. Right. Um, that, was and you. that was me. Yeah, a a pretty big staff transition happened. And I was like, well, if he's gone, I'm out. Like, there's no reason for me to be here anymore. And so I left and again, didn't attend church for a while. But then I was wrestling with this idea like, okay, I'm starting to believe again in God. But I, you know, if I were to weigh my list of things that I believe about God next to most Christians um, who have like hundreds of different, you know, things that they believe about God, I've got two it's God is real and God cares about me. And that's yeah. all I can admit to right now. Um, but in that time I was like, okay, I, you know, I, I'm at this place and yet I know that God is like telling me that the giftings he's given me and the, and the personality that I'm wired with is, is meant to help people and to do something creative with my life. And so I started applying for church jobs and started visiting other churches. And for about six months, I was church hopping. Mm-hmm. And um, at this time, I um, had uh, some custody of my son. He was about seven months old, eight months old, I think. Um, and so I would have to bring him with me. But I, every church that I walked into, I would bring my son and I wouldn't have a ring on my finger. And I remember feeling like the judgment from people's stares. And I remember feeling um, like alone and outcast. Um, And even if I didn't feel that from people, like even if I was able to slip by everybody unnoticed, I felt so disconnected and alone because of how clicky the churches were and how like very obvious it was that there was a dominant culture and I remember going to a couple of mega churches where I ended up applying for jobs um, where like, and this is probably actually most churches, the worship started and it was all hype and it was all like high praise, high energy, dancing and singing and clapping. And I remember feeling this sense of like, this doesn't feel genuine. Mm. This feels forced. And because I had grown up in the church, you know, even though we weren't high energy kind of stuff well a little bit but even though we weren't like you know all that to the degree that I was experiencing at this point um I like understood oh there's a there's an agenda behind this there's a motive Mm -hmm. behind this there's they're trying to incite something yeah you saw behind the curtain yeah yeah yeah. I I I knew what was happening and I just I felt alone Mm. and um and so then I stopped attending churches and um, a buddy of mine who we had been friends for probably 10 years, he was the worship leader at a different church. And at one of our like Christmas parties with like our close group of friends, um, he was just talking and checking in with me and um, asked if I was still at my old church. And I was like, yeah, no, <laughs> there's a lot that you don't know about this last year. Um, and filled him in. And he was like, well, like he, I basically was like, yeah, no, um, yeah, I'm a dad now and, um, I'm not married or anything and I'm not with the, with the girl or anything. And he's like, oh, okay. He's like, well, um, 
I really need electric guitarists if you want to come play. And I was like, yeah, maybe we'll see. So like three weeks later, I was like, you know what? I miss playing music. I'm going to hit him up. And so I was like, you know, it'll be like a once a month gig. I started playing and he was like, just kept asking me to keep coming back and keep playing. And I remember going and I would go with my son and I would, my son would come with me to rehearsal and I'd put little headphones on him and, you know, he was used to it. So, um, you know, he would come gig with me basically. (laughs) And it was the first time that I didn't feel any judgment from anybody. Like Mm -hmm. people knew my situation and I was embraced and welcomed and invited in. Um, and then, you know, still kind of kept up my search, which is when I applied to the church that you were working at at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, my wife, my, my girlfriend at the time, we had just started dating. Both of us kind of felt like God was saying to us, this isn't the right fit. And so we stayed at the church that we, that I was just kind of volunteering at. And a week later, my buddy announced I didn't know this, but he announced that he was stepping down and that um, him and his wife were, were moving. And six months later, they offered me the job and I've been there ever since. Um, for a while I was bartending and working at the, at the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got hired full time. And so now I'm no longer bartending and I miss it, but I, um, <laughs> yeah. You bartend for yourself instead. Now I bartend for friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and so now I'm working in full-time ministry, but I think I'm still, um, I love the church that I attend. Um, I love the community. I'm content with the way that our teaching staff presents the Bible and presents theology. I feel like we have a a fairly healthy um, view of reality and view of the world and, and view of God. Um, I know that we won't ever have everything right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice to, to be at a place that uh, maybe that's just that I agree with, <laughs> um, sure. if I'm being honest, but yeah, and you I, have a place there to be. I mean, you're one of the teachers, even though it's not your primary responsibility yep. uh, or your most frequent of responsibilities, you do get a chance to share um, from the front. Yeah. Maybe, maybe like a, I mean, good Lord, your Easter, I mean, your Christmas, uh, your Christmas sermon it was the week before <laughs> Christmas and uh, Stephen sent it to me. I listened to it and hands down, it was the best sermon I had heard in two years. And, uh, it was on hope. Um, yeah, I mean, you're a talented, you're a talented teacher, but you also uh, get to have that voice. You get to offer that perspective. Um, you get to challenge your congregation. You get to challenge your, your students as well. And then I think, I think one of the things that's so unique about you and the church that you're at right now and the roles that you have, uh, especially when it comes to worship is you get to reintroduce people into this lost art of lament and you've talked yeah. about that already, even in this episode, but in past episodes as well. And so, uh, I know that I know that it's, I know that it's not perfect for you either. Um, that there's still things that that rub at times, and we would expect that in any church setting. Yeah. Um, regardless of if we were the ones who were leading it or not, we would we would still find those tensions. But it's so neat to see you in a place where you get to get to get to be yourself um thank you yeah get to be honest get to help lead i do feel very fortunate to be empowered the way that i am um and to be able to say things that probably can't be said in a lot of churches um i i do feel very fortunate about that and um yeah i feel like if i were to lose my job tomorrow i don't think i would stop doing what i'm doing i think that i would Um, I would be probably doing this with friends in a pub and, um, you know, challenging people, but also helping people realize that there is more to life than, um, dogma and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, religious belief and, and what we can intellectually assent to. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel very fortunate to be able to, to have a voice 
Um, and I, and I think to have a voice, I feel like every time I, I give a sermon, um, you know, I, I think naturally they happen to be unique because there aren't a lot of, um, people in my situation in the church. <laughs> um, and you know, most people on staff, um, are not, and I don't mean this offensively, but, um, have assimilated and have, um, kind of been groomed or have been shaped to fit a certain mold. Um, and I don't do well with molds. (laughs) So, um, I, you know, can't box me in uh, now, but I feel like, yeah, every sermon that I've given, um, I feel like I'm advocating for the, for those who are on the outside yeah. of the church and those who are on the fringe of religion. Um, yeah. And part of me feels licensed to do that because I know that this community um, caters to those who are in that place. And I, and that's one of the things that drew me into it because I was there and I felt like I came into this church and I was like, this is different and I appreciate right. this. Um, and now I get a chance to do it as well, which is awesome. But yeah, I do feel like I'm constantly advocating for the agnostic and for the atheist and for um, the people who don't feel like they have it all together like, like it might seem that others in the church do. Yeah. Um, would you feel comfortable sharing about your worship team and, and who makes up some of the membership of that or maybe the people that serve in your youth ministry? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, because, um, unless I think that those, I think, I think that the people that we're thinking of, um, definitely fall into that camp too, of the people who typically are not encouraged, um, to participate in the church life. Uh, certainly to participate in service within the church. Yeah. So um, I have found myself um, over the last couple of years, particularly interested in the experiences of persons in the LGBTQ communities. And so I'm actually about to start some, a series of ongoing conversations um, with people who identify as um, lesbian or gay or, or queer or, um, transgender about their experiences with the church and with Christianity. Um, and, um, and so one of the things that I have to kind of, (laughs) I realize, um, as a Christian, I go into those conversations kind of with a target on my back if I don't know the person very well. And so I kind of have to present them with my credentials a little bit, um, of like what I believe and what I've done so far to, empower (laughs) these groups Mm -hmm. um and so this so i only say that to say that this next part will sound like i'm tooting my own horn and i probably am um but it's really just (laughs) it's more for the context um yeah so in terms of like the my worship team and and um who i've kind of invited in um i have um i was the first um, staff member ever at this church to um, one uh, bring in a and I, I'll say well known in our community um, lesbian as a volunteer for our high school ministry, um, which means that she was spending time with our high schoolers. She was um, sharing parts of her story, leading small group discussions. Um, I'd probably safe to say that that's kind of unheard of in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, unless you're uh, say like an Episcopalian church, right. That's affirming or yeah. Methodist or something. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, I got the blessing of our lead pastor, so I can't take all the credit for that. You know, I, I went to him first and I said, Hey, I'm, I want to do this. I want to invite this person. I see, you know, I see some giftings in this person. I think they would be a really good fit for our students. Um, but I don't want to do it and then have to ask her to leave. That would be the worst. So I said, I want to do this. Do I have your blessing? And we talked about it for a couple of weeks. And then he basically just was like, you know what? Yes. I don't want to make a policy that like polices people. 
um, do it. And I was like, right. Um, and then also, um, I, again, probably the first, well, yeah, definitely the first person at our church um, to have a uh, transgender man on my worship team. Um, he was serving before he transitioned and, um, and when he told me that he was starting to socially transition, um, we had a conversation that I don't think went the way that he was expecting it to go. (laughs) Um, I think he was expecting me to say, okay, I think you need to step down from ministry for a while and, you know, really pray about this and stuff. Um, and I think that my wife and I are probably one of a handful of people at our church who have said, we support you. Um, we understand. One of the first questions I asked was, how has your experience been at this church with coming out to people? Um, and then I also told him, you know, if you need somebody to go to any doctor's appointments with you because he's he's been disowned by his family and stuff Mm. um i said if you need anybody to go with you to these appointments let me know i'd be happy to go um and then i i also and i think this is where he probably felt the most included and welcomed is i because i know that uh, if you're if you're lesbian or gay or bi or transgender you don't fit into a lot of the categories that most Christians do. And so the one of the first things I, I did I'm sorry, can I just give a, a quick ex- yeah. like and and yet you shouldn't you should still be involved in every single one of them. Yes. Because you're dearly beloved by God. Yes. And uh before anything else, you are loved. You've always been loved. Your orientation, your identification has nothing to do with that. Um, I mean, we, Stephen and I, I think, both approach uh, just humanity as a whole with the perspective that says um, we have been, all of us have been called image bearers, and there's some sort of innate value that's given to every single one of us, not because we've done anything, but it's just it's just the essence of who we are that is loved by God. Yeah. And so, therefore, we all belong. Um, therefore, the things that um, heteronormative individuals get to experience in the church should also be yours. Yep. I agree. Yeah. So one of the things that I very quickly and intentionally reminded him of, um, that I don't think he's heard before. Um, and, and probably a lot of listeners probably haven't heard this before is that the biblical narrative, right? That the story that we call the Bible as a transgender man, he is much closer to that story than I am as a privileged white man serving in the church. Mm. Um, because there are things that I will overlook in the Old Testament and the New Testament about Israel's story, right? About, about God's chosen people, about what it means to be close to the heart of God. Um, there are things that I will automatically miss because of my status that he already understands. And so when I was talking to him, I said, hey, you know, don't be discouraged. I know that you are probably wrestling, naturally wrestling with what this means in regards to your faith um, because you're probably being told a lot of things. And I said, if you hear anything, hear this. The story of God that is laid bare on these pages is for you and you are much closer to this story than I am and than most people are already here at this church because of what you're experiencing and going through. Um, And I said, you probably will read this thing and understand it better than I will. Um, You know, you will understand the story of Israel um, feeling isolated and alone and oppressed by Egypt. You will understand what it feels like to walk in a desert and be hungry and feel lonely and, um, you know, because of what you're experiencing. And Mm -hmm. this story is much more your story than it is mine. Um, And I think people who are on the fringe of religion need to be reminded of that, that you are probably already much closer to this story and much closer to the heart of God than most uh, privileged Christians. Yeah. 
And if you're uh, if you're listening to this and this is the first time you've heard a concept like this, what Stephen is implying, what he's getting at here is that the narrative, the narratives that were uh, told in the scriptures that we read through in the Bible, these were the narratives of people who were disenfranchised, disempowered. They were slaves. Um, they were the ones who were oppressed. Even in the, in the New Testament, so many of the letters, so much of the time is trying to bring encouragement and hope to people who are persecuted, um, to a people group who literally, because of who they identify with, are being killed. And so to our brothers and sisters out there in the LGBTQ community, um, that's, that's, or to those of us who are privileged and, and, and see things through, unfortunately, at times, a more shallow lens, uh, the reason why it might not make sense to us is if we're privileged, it's because we don't have to worry about what it is to be hated because of who we identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to worry about persecution that comes up. We don't know what it's like to be a slave of a system. We don't know what it's like to be disempowered, disenfranchised, told that you don't belong. And so what Stephen is saying with that is that the people in the scriptures, they were, they were very familiar with that. This story of God redeeming Israel was for the slave. It was for the captive. Um, and so many of, of, yeah, of our LGBTQ brothers identify because of, of, the way that they identify or who they identify with, um, they've experienced similar things to what it was that Israel would have experienced. And so they'll have a, a unique understanding of the scriptures as they read through it. They'll be able to say, Oh, I know that. I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to be hated because of who I am. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things that I wrote down a few notes as you were sharing your story. Well, let me just pause. Is Was there anything else that you wanted to add to catch us up, catch the listener, catch me up with where you're at right now? Uh, no. All right. Well, then one question. I'll start with this one. And I've got a couple of uh, things here, like I said. But during that time, you uh, you affectionately say that you spent some time in atheist land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, w- were you open with people about that? Like, did you tell your parents, your, your family, your friends, your clo- the people who knew you? No. That you, yeah. Um, I definitely didn't tell my parents. Um, I told a couple of my close friends. Um, and then I told most of the people that I was meeting at that time, you know, mm. I would say, Oh, okay. when someone would say something like, Oh yeah, I go to this church. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I don't do that. And there was almost a sense of freedom in meeting mm. new people and being able to say, yeah, oh no, yeah, no, I don't, I'm not in, into that. And in talking about church and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny because most people were like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. But the, the couple of people that would be like, that would kind of push it a little bit, um, had no idea of my upbringing, my background. Mm. And, you know, and so it was like, dude, you have no idea. I've got a solid foothold on this thing. <laughs> and you know, if you want to start debating, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I ask is because I wonder how many of our listeners maybe find themselves in a similar place um, and would identify as atheist, but haven't told anybody about that. Yeah, and then vice versa. You know, those of those of our listeners who maybe, um spent time in atheist land themselves or currently are there. And then they have shared that with people and what that experience is like. And, um, and your story, um, there's something relatable to both people. I think mm-hmm. whether, whether it's they're meeting people like you were and they were sharing and they're sharing, um, that they identify as atheist or if it's people who are choosing not to necessarily come out of the closet, so to speak with that because of the fear of maybe what that would, what that would mean relationally. Yeah. Um, I, this is going to jump back early to your story. Um, but I found myself wanting to jump in at a certain point and say, if you're, if you're in a place or have been in a place and there's a season of your life that you look back on with great affection because of the amount of time that you were spending serving in the church, um, and that in some capacity that made you feel close to God or like you are part of something that's totally okay. That's good. And, and, and we don't want you to hear, um, 
hear Stephen's story or my story next time you tune in through the lens of that being a bad thing. Um, at least for myself, I'll speak to those seasons of my life have brought great meaning and purpose and joy and life. Um, and if that's where you find yourself or if you have a story like that as well, great. Like that is a gift, that season of life that you got to enjoy. <laughs> what what a wonderful thing. Oh, we, we're not hating on that by any stretch. Um, also, some of what Stephen was saying when he was talking about the holiness heart, um, and that idea, maybe you've heard that through, I'm going to say an evangelical lens that says you have a hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill, but you might've picked up in Stephen's story that he was walking with Jesus at the time, like identified as a Christian, uh, said that he followed Jesus and yet there was something else missing. Yeah. And that um, was at the peak of my <laughs> doing know, your religious Jesus affiliation. Yeah. That was, yeah. The, that was the height of my entire, you know, spiritual time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's probably a, a longer conversation that we could actually have around that. So maybe we should jot that down, Stephen. But, um, in a nutshell to our listeners, um, the hole in your heart, I mean, Stephen identified it as being something that was probably the residual effects of trauma in his life, um, from his upbringing. And, and if you're like, Oh yeah, that makes so much sense. I, I followed Jesus. And yet there seems to be this gaping hole in my heart. I do want to point you to a resource, uh, via Instagram, somebody that I've personally benefited a lot from their work. And, and that's the account, the holistic psychologist. Yeah. So, I don't know. You follow them. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. They're great. Um, I, what I don't, I don't know her name. That's, I just know her as the holistic psychologist. So, uh, shout out to her. And, um, what she does is she does a lot of work with her entire audience on healing from trauma um, reparenting, uh, codependency. So yeah, if you find yourself in a place where you're like, Oh yeah, I follow Jesus, but there's this, there's this gaping hole in my heart. Maybe, uh, if you are on Instagram, jump on there, take a look at the holistic psychologist work and see if anything resonates with you. And then allow that to be a door that you walk through into healing. Um, and, and while, Instagram is and her account in particular can be a really great resource. I also want to encourage you to share that with somebody. Um, and if you don't have the ability to get into therapy or into a therapeutic relationship at this time, if you can find somebody that you trust, somebody that you know loves you and somebody who's going to be a safe space for you that you can start to process some of these things with, especially if you're in the church and you're like, Jesus just isn't cutting it for me. Um, I want to encourage you to do that. That might feel risky. Uh, but if you, if you, are friends with the right person that can be that person for you, the person that you get to share and be intimate with uh, emotionally, then I think that that'll, that'll be for your betterment, for your health. Um, I, I think that you'll find that being known in that place will be incredibly healing just by being able to actually articulate and vocalize some things. Um, if, you, if you're interested in that, um, that resource, her name is Dr. Nicole LaPera. Um, and her Instagram handle where she posts all of her, um, insightful, uh, tips is the dot holistic H O L I S T I C dot psychologist P S Y C H O L O G I S T. So the dot holistic dot psychologist. Awesome. Thank you for finding that. Um, and then one other big thing that just my heart ached for you and for anybody who has had this experience when you were talking about walking into churches with your son and feeling like you had a scarlet letter on your chest. Um, like you were judged by people. Um, man, if, if you're, uh, if you're listening right now and because of something that has happened to you, something that's been done to you, something that you've chosen to participate in, whatever the circumstance might be, if that's your story, if you walk into a church and you feel instantaneous shame or you feel eyeballs on you and it just feels oppressive on behalf of the church, um, I am so, so sorry that that's been your experience. Um, I don't believe that Jesus would look at you in that way. I don't believe that that's the way in which he envisioned people who, who followed him or who said that they were his disciples 
I don't envision that that's the way that he expected us to behave or live. And so um, I hope deeply that you find a place where you get to have the type of experience that Stephen eventually had of finding a church where um, he was invited and welcomed in and known in the midst of um, what the church, other churches at least, would have would have seen as a shameful uh, experience or part of his story. So again, I'm sorry, and I really do deeply hope for you that you find a place where you can feel safe and that you belong. Well, anything, any last words, Stephen, for our listeners before we send them off this week? Um, no, other than we we hope that um, beyond this discussion, we hope that you are finding safe spaces to be real and honest and authentic about where you're at in life and with issues of faith um, and spirituality. And we want you to know, again, that you are loved no matter who you are, no matter what you're bringing to the table, no matter um, who or what you identify as, no matter what you feel like um, you've done that has disqualified you from anything. We, we want you to know that you are loved and you are accepted and you are worthy of those two things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if this conversation has been helpful or challenging for you in any way, we'd love for you to share our podcast. Uh, you can rate us, you can review us. That'll help with algorithms on the various platforms in which you're finding and listening to this podcast. Um, but we are, as always, grateful to be a part of your story, a part of your journey, and to have a space in your life where um, we get to weigh in and give some some ideas and some perspectives. Um, and that, that sharing piece in particular, just to return to that, we know that there might be people who aren't quite aware of the, the numerous amount of resources like podcasts that are out there that might help them not feel so alone on their journey. And so we would love for you to share this um, for that for that reason as well, that maybe there's somebody out there who would really benefit from knowing that they're not totally alone. And so if you would help us out with reaching them, we would deeply appreciate it. But with all that, brothers and sisters, would grace and peace be with you this week.